Welcome to the inaugural Q&A podcast. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. I'm in the Torch Center, and I'm pleased to be joined with a dear friend and a colleague of mine and one of my mentors, Rabbi Yaakov Kohn, who is one of the rabbis that works for us here at Torch. Uh, he is an expert in uh, all matters of Torah learning, but specifically his area of expertise is matters of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism, uh, and he's going to be our friend and our co-host for this inaugural episode of Q&A. Uh, Robert Corney wants to say hi to the audience. Hello, everybody. Great to be here. And uh, the first subject that we're going to tackle on the question and answer podcast here. Uh, this is a question I got from a listener named Robin. She actually shared with me two great questions, but we're going to cover only one of them today. And she wanted to know about the history of Ayin Hara and the different views of the sages. Now, to translate that into English is that there's a concept called Ayin Hara or Ayin Hara, to be more precise. And Ayin is the Hebrew word for eye, as in the eyeball that you used to see. And ra means bad, the bad eye or the evil eye. This is an idea that makes many appearances in Jewish literature, maybe even more appearances in Jewish folklore. It certainly is part of the Jewish parlance. It's one of those things that you hear quite commonly where someone says that they have something good. They would say, bli ein hara, without an evil eye, or Kain ein hara nit, which means like no ein, no ein hara, or they say it, ken hara which is basically blending all those words together. And this is a subject of much uh, intrigue, interest. I think probably people don't really know what it means. What's this idea of this evil eye? It's dangerous. You have to hide from it. Uh, All that. So that's what we want to cover uh, today, this idea of the evil eye, what it is, what it is not. I also think that this is something, maybe you would have a different take, Rabbi Cohen, but this is something that is part of an entire body of Jewish ideas that people like me are a little bit suspect of. But you know yourself, the Gomorrah. Well, okay, so we're going to get to that. Okay. Yes, but it's certainly, I think, for a lot of people, it's one of those heebie-jeebie kind yes, of things. heebie-jeebie, superstitious, exactly. fearful people. Yes, yeah, so one of those things that is in the realm as Kameas, amulets, uh, reincarnations, one of those things that people don't know much about and they assume was made up recently by uh, charlatans. I, I, I have been trained, and maybe you'll find this offensive. I hope you don't find this offensive. I've been trained... Whenever I hear someone talk about these kinds of things, to automatically assume that they're charlatans or snake oil salesmen, unless proven otherwise. Uh, I, I just, I'll start off with a story, and you could feel free, of course, to interject. Uh, when I was a little kid, my parents took me to the Ayn Hara lady. They went with the whole family. What's an Ayn Hara lady? Well, it's a woman, and what she does is she has people come to her house, and she heats up molten lead in a pot. She has cold water in a second pot. She has this thick blanket. She puts the blanket over you, and then she says some incantations. I don't know what she says, but she pours the molten lead into the other pot with the cold water, and that is a way to kind of exorcise those demons. And then she takes the what's left, the mash, the mangled lead, and it has pictures of eyeballs in it. And that's the Aina round that she takes a, a hammer and she smashes them. And then she takes a second round, does the same thing, and then it doesn't show up like that at all. And then I remember my mother came as well. 
I must have been, I don't know, six or seven little kid. And my mother, thank God, she has lots of children. And the images that came out of that particular exorcism were in the shape of babies. It was kind of strange. Well, did you see those babies? No. I, I just remember there were some weird images that came I've out. Only, that's more than me because I've only heard of those instances. And it was done to my son, Alicia, they said. They did it. A lady in Dallas also did the, the lead thing. I've actually got some uh, source here. There, It's not used lead. It's not or lead. You, you can use olive oil, actually, for something very— Wait, uh, so they didn't use very, lead or they didn't no, use no, lead? No, no, that lady you went to used lead. Okay. And it's used lead. I've heard silver. And I've got here actually a source— that uh, olive oil could be used because maybe it's hard to get lead, melt lead, and things like that. So you can, like, you know, you can weed off the ayin hara with household items. Interesting. What I do remember hearing, and again, this is me going back a long, not so long, you know, not so long ago, but twenty some odd years ago. I remember hearing, like, I remember then thinking this is kind of odd, and then I remember hearing, think, I remember hearing someone saying. That well, she doesn't charge for it, so she, there's no there's no profit motive. She's just doing it because this is actually a way to get rid of the ayin hara, and she's doing an amazing service, and she specifically doesn't charge for it, and she seemed like a kind of a saintly kind of woman. Usually, it's always the elderly grandmothers or the great grandmothers that are involved in that. Yeah, it's, it's it, it, it is odd, but I think if we just saw that image of some old saintly woman murmuring all kinds of spells under her breath and pouring molten lead in a pot of cold water and then looking at the resultant uh, shapes. I think if you just show that to the uninitiated, it seems bizarre and it seems odd. But what I discovered when I researched the subject is that this is not some sort of a newfangled superstition invented by the modern Kabbalists. It has very, very ancient roots and also there's some rationale behind the general idea. Yes. As we know, if you look at some of the sources in the Talmud. So so let's start with the earliest source that I found. And maybe you could find me an earlier source, but the earliest source that I found of the of the idea of the Ayn Hara, not to be confused with the Yetzer Hara, but the Ayn Hara, the evil eye, the earliest source I found is in the book of Genesis. In chapter 16, we have... Abraham is barren, no, no children, his wife is infertile. His wife Sarai, she proposes that Abraham marries her maidservant, Hagar, and she right away becomes pregnant and she starts to belittle Sarai, Sarah. And Rashi says that Sarai implanted in Hagar an evil eye and she was pregnant, but she miscarried. And then she became pregnant a second time. And With Ishmael. That was Ishmael. That was Ishmael. And then after Ishmael was banished, Ishmael was sick and almost died. And why was he sick? Again, Rashi quotes from the sages that Sarah, this time she's called Sarah, not Sarai, implanted upon Ishmael a... Evil eye. An evil eye. So that's kind of an interesting idea that... Sarah is using some sort of metaphysical means to cause, or via this metaphysical means, she is causing Hagar to lose a baby and Hagar's other son, or actual son that's born, Ishmael, to become ill. Okay, so there's a one source. Is there any others? 
Uh, yes, there are other sources. In the Chumash? In the Tanakh? Yeah. Okay, go for it. Uh, another source that I found, and we just read recently the Parsha, the ten brothers of Joseph go down to Egypt, and it says in Rashi, and it's hinted in the verse, that they went in ten different entrances. They could have gone through one port of entry to Egypt, ten different brothers, they each chose their own entrance, then they go in the same entrance, why would they avoid to go in the same entrance? So Rashi tells us, so that the Ein Hara, the evil eye, should not have any control over them. And then Rashi adds, because they're all handsome and they were all strong. Right. So they all come in one gate. So then everybody goes like, what is this? Wow, those guys are unbelievably marvelous, and then an Ayin Hara would, would follow. Yes, so what I, if someone really, I guess the first thing we could learn is that if someone wants to avoid the Ayin Hara, if you're ugly or weakling, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> so therefore, that's why people try to keep things that they particularly are fond of or dear of away from public eye. That's usually the general trend for those who are worried about the evil eye. Yes, and... I guess that would be what the brothers, their rationale was. Don't attract. Yeah. Don't drive up and down with your Maserati, your red Maserati up and down all over the neighborhood, you know, and attract attention. So if you see one of the brothers walking through, it's pretty imposing, but it's not something which is a huge deal. Whereas if you see 10 hulking, muscular, handsome men walking through, well, that may attract undue attention caused the Ayn Hara. Right. So obviously you're, now you're getting another clue into what Ayn Hara is and what can attract or what can make it, what can create it, which usually would be envy. Interesting. Right. Obviously it awakens somebody to look upon that with envy and that could or, you know, is probably the biggest key to Ayn Hara. So Ayn Hara, Rabbi Cohen, you're telling me, is about envy of the beholder the beholder who sees someone else having something good, whether it's something physical or maybe something else, that could con- that envy kind of could convey some sort of forces. So what I've, I was told that that what happens is that the person who is looking, right, who wants whatever it is that that person has, right, if he wants their donkey or their wife or whatever, and he looks with a jealous eye. So what is is that's a, that's an energy. Right? Okay. And we are taught that every thought that you think, every word that you say, and every action you do creates a malach. There's a malach that's created, an, an energy. Angel, yes. That energy of jealousy, I'm going to just bring into the imagery of how it's explained to me, is like an angel is like a force that goes to heaven and asks the question in the heavenly court, why does this guy getting that and not me? So in other words, what, you're, what the person's doing is they're awakening judgment in heaven about that person, that why should that person get that car or that house or that thing? And therefore, it's almost kind of like forcing heaven to open up that person's file to really review the case more with more detail to seeing, yes, maybe this person isn't worthy of getting that house, that car, or whatever it is. 
So therefore, it awakens like a judgment in a certain sense. So my envy on someone else's things and someone else's goodies awakens divine judgment on the merits of them having that. And whenever we're judged by God, we don't ever know how it's going to turn out. And it's likely going to turn out poorly because who of us could really withstand right. harsh scrutiny? Right. Yeah. Right. The interesting thing was in that uh, the first episode that you brought with, with Sarai – that she actually went to Avram Avinu after Hagar got pregnant. And she said, Hamasi Alecha, I have a grievance with you, right? And she pulled down Din. In other words, she said, May Hadshem judge between you and me. Therefore, you never want to pull down judgment. And I think it's the Balaturim brings down over there that when you pull down judgment, you're going to get hit first, usually. Okay? So you're saying it doesn't end well for the person doesn't who doesn't end well for the person bringing the judgment either because usually – but it could be that she actually verbalized such a statement. May I shouldn't judge between you and me. So therefore, that brought it down and then they judged her first. So it could be though the evil eye, so to speak, the eye of jealousy will necessarily – you cannot necessarily bring it upon you first. You'll actually bring it upon that person that you're jealous of first. I'm just saying it could. Because you didn't, you're not verbally calling it, okay? Yeah, so, but, but it could boomerang back against it, you. You most likely will, okay? That, because obviously this person is unhappy, and, and so therefore it's just going to snowball. So, uh, yeah, so I say we, we certainly have uh, the first idea. I did not see, we didn't compare notes uh, beforehand. Uh, I did some research, Robert Cohn did some research. And uh, we just came in here, and this was not on my notes. I did not know this, that, that when I think something, it creates an angel. If I think of thoughts of envy, it creates thoughts, an angel of envy, and therefore that angel goes to heaven, and that angel invokes this justice. idea. Yes, justice, and then that person is scrutinized yes. more harshly. Nobody stands up in the face of judgment 100%. So therefore he can Everything we get is free gift yes. from God, right? So. Right, we have to just uh, okay. So in any case, yes. So that so that will, so that will be the thing. So I, I remember, and maybe this 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 will explain some of the practices that I've encountered. Like my parents are very wary of having all their children, let's say, photographed, or having the photographs of the family being displayed in any public manner. Like they would hide it. They would hide like a picture of the whole family. And Some people, if you ask them how many kids you have, they'll say enough. They won't tell you the number because of the same thing. And again, that, that's not just a superstition. Here we see like in the Torah that this is ancient. This is not a new thing. And, and now we have a, a, some sort of context to understand it. That by you displaying for other people, you may invoke their envy. You may invoke their evil eye. And it could really portend poorly for you. Right. So the, the, usually the motif is so to, to walk modestly with God. So this is kind of another corollary of that. So we have envy, modesty, evil eye, all that. And obviously you have some sources here for it. Yes. Okay, let's see the next source. So we have a verse in the end of Genesis. When Jacob's about to pass, he calls all his sons and he gives them all a blessing. And in particular, the blessing, maybe the longest blessing of them all is the blessing he gives to Joseph. And, of course, those blessings, you look at the commentary, there's voluminous commentary in each one of the blessings because they're so poetic and there's so many layers of understanding. But he tells Joseph, the, the, word, the critical words here is ale ayin, which means on top of the eye or to ascend above the eye. And the commentators over there in the Talmud, they talk about that, that somehow Joseph and Joseph's descendants 
are not subject to this. They are above the eye. They ascend. They transcend the eye, and therefore they're not subject to this whole concept of the evil eye. In fact, the Talmud also says that uh, Joseph's sons, they're given a blessing, says the Talmud. What does that word, what does that mean? It means that they will flourish like fish, just like fish are invisible. They're covered under the, uh, under the, under the water. So too, the sons of the children of Joseph are, are hidden. You can't have... Just like fish are impervious yes. to evil eyes. Yes. Or- so therefore, so, yeah. so what's that? Well, why is Joseph? You know, that's a really interesting thing. And you know what occurred to me as you were saying that was people who do things completely for the sake of heaven. In other words, their motivation, there's a rule that nobody will be jealous of that person. This is a bizarre rule. In other words, so Joseph, of course, every single thing that he was doing was completely for the sake of heaven. Feeding the masses. What he was doing, he was supplying the food to the entire world. Committed, he was dedicated. Everything, his complete dedication was just for the sake of the other, complete altruism, completely for the sake of heaven. There was not any ego involved in any of his actions. When there's no ego, and a person is doing things really with no trace of ego, that is impervious to jealousy. A person's jealous. A person, I don't know how it works, but people will not be jealous of that person. I've seen it. You know, and I've felt it. And certain people, they just carry the certain character where it's just, gosh, they have this, they have that, but you're not jealous of them. You just don't find yourself to have any jealousy. It's just a weird kind of phenomenon. So maybe, maybe I'm just saying you can attribute to that person as doing things with the right motives. So, so Joseph was selfless, and therefore he did it all altruistically. He did l'shma, as we would say in Talmudic parlance. He did it for its for the right intention, and therefore he got this benefit to not be subject and to anyone. And children ever, also, yes. I guess they got enough of that in their genes in terms of their direction and motivation where they don't have to worry about the evil life. Even Rabbi Yochanan, right? Rabbi Yochanan, right? He would sit outside the mikvah that the women would see him and they would see his beauty because he was supposed to be unbelievably beautiful. And of course, of course, because that would hopefully impress on, you know, the, be- uh, the children that these women would have coming out of the mikvah. And they went to Rabbi Yochanan and they're going, what are you doing? How can you do this? You're like bringing the evil eye upon you. No, I'm a descendant of Joseph. I do not have to worry Nothing about Nothing to worry it. about. Right. Yes. So I, and now that we're speculating, maybe I could speculate too. And this is me totally making it up right now uh, amidst the discussion. But maybe the reason behind that is that, you know, Joseph, one of the attributes that we see that he's given in the Torah is the fact that he has chen, he has charisma. People really like him. Wherever he is, people like him, even though his brothers can't stand him, which is ironic. His brothers can't stand him, but then he's sold and everyone loves him, and then he gets put in prison, and even there they love him, and then Pharaoh says, this guy's amazing, I've never seen anyone like him, and he becomes the superstar. But maybe when someone is beloved... Yeah, what wins that? What wins that favor? What helps a person to have that kind of grace? Well, I don't know. But I understand. But I totally hear what you're saying. Whatever totally is beloved, no one's There's some of them. kind of grace that this person has that people are not jealous. They all love him. So some kind of energy there. But that would fit in really nicely to the idea that the trigger really of evil eye is envy. So if there's no envy because people like you, then there is no concern over evil eye. I want to share another source where we see this idea, and this I found to be the most shocking, I think, uh, of all the sources. And uh, this is a midrash talking about the tablets at Sinai. We know there were two sets of tablets. 
There was the first set of tablets, and there were the second set of tablets. The fate of the two tablets are very different. The first tablets, well, they were written by God, but they were destroyed by Moses. And the second set of tablets were hewn by, uh, or were hewn by Moses, but in, inspired, infused by God as well with, with the letters. But those survived. Says the Midrash, why is it that the first tablets were destroyed and the second tablets survived? Says the Midrash. So this is uh, from the Midrash Tanchuma in uh, Parshas Tisisa, which is in the end of, of Exodus. And it says, when God tells Moses to go ascend the mountain a second time to get a second set of tablets, there should, shouldn't be a single person by the mountain. Whereas the first set of tablets at the experience of natural revelation at Sinai, there, well, it was everyone, the entire nation, millions of people are witnessing it. The second time, not a single person shows up. Why, says the Midrash, the first tablets which were given in a public fashion, everyone was there, therefore they had Ein Hara on it, and therefore it was broken. Says the Almighty, there's nothing preferable than sneers, than modesty, than doing it in a hidden fashion, and therefore a second set of tablets, no one should be there, it should be done, just, just Moses on the mountain, there's no pomp, there's no ceremony, and therefore there's no Ein Hara. Where were the people? They weren't, they weren't by the mountain? I guess they were by the camp. <laughs> the camp, I thought, was at the foot of the mountain. Okay, but I, whatever it was, they were away. Well, I mean, they weren't this there. This is an astonishing thing. Like the most, it is, totally. Uh, and I've heard this before. A person can give an ayin hara to himself. Well, here comes the tablets coming to them, which is like the symbol of the unbelievable relationship between God and the Jewish people. So they got an ayin hara. Astounding. Yeah, it's astounding. And then it's been pointed out that the first set of tablets, what was the plan? So in the alternative universe where Moses didn't break it or the Jewish people didn't send the golden tablet, what was the plan with it? Where was it going to be stored? They didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. They didn't have the Ark yet. The Ark came only later. The Ark came months and months later. The Ark came for the second set of tablets. Right. Why? Because the second set of tablets, it's all about concealment. You gotta hide it. You gotta, it cannot be in front of everyone. It's gotta be the tablets. And by the way, for the probably nearly a millennium that the tablets were part of the Jewish people's collected artifacts, most people never saw it in their lives. Oh, maybe no one ever saw it in their lives. It was hidden away in the most hidden place in the Holy of Holies. Only the coin God goes in there, and in the, no even there, it. it's hidden inside the art. It's totally Unbelievable. hidden. So the first set of tablets would have been always in the open hid, if that they was would the not plan. have been broken. They would have been always front and center shining. everywhere. Yes. Yes. The world couldn't take that light. Or that light is susceptible to Ayn Hara. Okay. It's a, it's a wild, wild thing. Yeah. And by the way, when my grandfather— that way, and this is how it is now. Yeah, when my grandfather— when he wrote this, he's like, if this was not written in the Midrash... I would never... We wouldn't be allowed to say it. It's, it it's wouldn't. so It's no. so outrageous. From yeah. what would, In effect, what the Midrash is saying, the most significant, holiest event in all of human history had a flaw in it. And that was the Ayn Haran. And that was rectified in the second set of Amazing tablets. how that was the whole thing. Important subject. Ayn Haran, when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It seems kind of uh, all-encompassing. <laughs> yes. And then we have the Talmud. The Talmud talks here about uh, proper, a- proper asset allocation, what to do with your money. Yeah. Baba Metziah. Baba right? Metziah, yes. On page 42a, and the Talmud says, 
that a person should split up his money into three, half in the ground, half in business, and half in cash. They didn't have mattresses those days. That's, a, that's probably <laughs> what they meant, cash. <laughs> and then continues the Talmud. Why would you hide it in the ground? Because if you want it to be successful, you want it to flourish, no one, has, no one should see it. Because if everyone sees it, then things start to grind to a halt. And the Talmud continues, is that the blessing is found... Only in something which is some women high. Yes, and only in the storage houses. Once you count your money, there's no way for God to magically multiply it. Once it's counted. Leave it uncounted, it's whatever, who knows what God will do. There could be blessing there. Once I assign a number on it, it's too late. Right? The miracles don't happen like that. Right, right, right. So uh, that's definitely kind of the, the, same, the same idea, the same theme that when I look at something, this is how my grandfather explained it, which is a little bit different than what we said earlier, but I think it's, it's another aspect of, of this idea. When I look at something with my eyeballs, maybe I, this, is, this is me editorializing here, but the Talmud says that our soul and God share five attributes. This is the Talmud of Brachos. Okay. One of them is that Roeh, Ve'eno nira sees but is unseen. The difference, well, one of the differences between the physical world and the spiritual world is that the physical world is visual, is, is possible to visualize, and the spiritual world is not possible to visualize. The second I look at something, I am downgrading it from being from the spiritual world or, being, or at least being possible to exist in that realm. And now once I see it, it's visualized, it's in our world. Once I see it, it can no longer have the blessing which comes. It gets like locked into a physical existence. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And once it's there, it's going to stay there. So looking at something is going to downgrade it from a spiritual reality to a physical reality. And then once it's here, it doesn't have, it's I guess. It's be susceptible to all the limitations of this yes, world. Yes, yes. And dare we say, the Ein Hara, it's not just limitations. There's potential damage that could happen because now it does, it's, it's like been removed from the protection of God. Can we say that? Is that fair? Interesting. You know, once it's had its, uh, its solidified reality, that's it. Rabbi Nachman here, he brings out something here about the power of the glance, okay? He says you can have your glance, but then it's usually, it depends what kind of thought is accompanying that glance, right? So he says if an evil thought accompanies this glance, it can reach another and harm him. So it has to do with something not necessarily, necessarily just a glance, but it's a thought associated with that glance, Okay. So, he's, so he brings us down. The power of sight actually exists and can touch the visualized object. And when the eye is evil, meaning the thought behind the eye, so this glance can actually do damage. The last source that I have is from the Talmud, or awesome but let's see on page 107b. And again, we mentioned this a little earlier. And this is uh, talking about Rav. Rav is one of the most, most oft-quoted teachers in the Talmud. And Rav says that when the verse in Deuteronomy chapter 7 says that God pledges to remove from us all illnesses, he's referring to the Ein Hara. That's all illnesses. What does that mean? All, that's all illnesses. So the Talmud explains that this is Rav in accordance with his other stated What's position. What's the verse? The Hesir Hashem Choli. Okay. This is Rav in accordance with his other stated position. Why? Because Rav traveled to a cemetery. And in a cemetery, via some unknown means, he was able to determine the cause of death 
of the people that were interred there. And he would, Rashi, like Rashi says, He knew how to whisper above the grave sites and to understand on each grave with which death the person buried there died. And was it in the correct time? Or was it via Ein Hara? Which to me, this Rashi is saying that Ein Hara by definition means to die early. Yeah. But the Talmud goes on to say that when Rav concluded his survey of the cemetery, he gave us statistics. 99% of people die because of Ein Hara, of evil eye, and 1% of people die because of natural means. I mean, was that, you know, you know, obviously there's so many questions that Gomorrah, was that like every cemetery? That was one specific cemetery, you know? Well, it, so, but it's still, it's a huge statistic. Yes, definitely what he's saying is that there is... Not normal. Yes, it yeah. is one of the greatest causes of death from the spiritual side is the fact that someone has Ainara, that Ainara can be manifested, I would imagine, just translating this into modern times, it can be manifested in an illness, in a heart disease, in... Anything, in any kind. A car accident, whatever. Yes. Yes. Anything. I want to also, I want to add that my grandfather said another, this is maybe even a third way of understanding, this idea that Ayn Harak could have an effect and even kill people. He said that the Almighty takes into account the will of humanity when making his decisions. Meaning like we're partners with God in determining what happens in the world. Who is in charge of the world? Of course, it's the Almighty, but the Almighty ceded some degree of control to humanity via our free will, and therefore we have a say too. And of course, that's the fundamental idea of, of Judaism is that we can do good, we can do bad. It's, there is some free will that we have to affect and effectuate the change and the reality of the world. So he explained is that when someone has a negative view on someone else and applies the evil eye on them, well then, in effect, they're lobbying God that that person shouldn't exist. Because if I wanted him and her to exist, I would view them favorably. And now that I view them not favorably, that is me, in effect, telling God, I don't know, I think we should knock these people off. And therefore, that could have disastrous, deadly, fatal effects on that person because... I'm with my evil eye, I'm asking, so to speak, the Almighty that they should die. So it's, it's kind of like the same direction of it's a judgment. You pass a judgment on this person, and then that judgment is an energy that goes ahead and creates, you know, a, a certain reality of that energy to some degree. Yes, definitely. So, so it's like, a, yes, I agree with that 100%. It's the same kind of thing. Now, interestingly, the Tosfos there, the commentaries of the Tosfos on that page in, in the Talmud in, in Babansia, 99% of people die because of Ein Hara. Tosfos asks a very interesting question. Well, we know, and we've talked about this, that Joseph is not subject to Ein Hara. So the people from the tribe of Joseph should be living much longer because if you're able to save yourself from 99% of all illnesses, you should have a much longer lifespan. What an interesting question. Definitely. So it must be that cemetery wasn't anybody from the tribe, except for that one guy. Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. So it, it's an interesting question. Okay, so let's let's finish off here. Unless there's anything else you want to add. I've got some, some stuff to add. So go ahead. Okay, just want to talk about another interesting thing, the source, another source that Rabbi Nachman brings down, which is really kind of 
really interesting that he said that when ya- uh, Yaakov Avinu, when Jacob was coming back to Israel, and he sent an angel to Esav, an angel, uh, so the angel came back and said, Esav is coming, and he's got 400 men with him. So he, here, Rabbi Nachman brings down that the 400 men that Esau, Esau brought with him, he brought them in order to place an evil eye on Yaakov Avinu. Okay? So why is the power of 400? So if you look at the numerical value of 400, the gematria is Ra-Ayin. If you add up the numerical value, it's Ra-Ayin, 400. Ra-270. Yes. 270 and Ayin is... uh, 130. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So 400. It's not just random 400. That's what he was able to... Those those are the mercenaries that he got. There's the source of the evil eye. He wanted them all to put an evil eye on Yaakov Avino. So now, what's the remedy? Okay. Here's the remedy, Rabbi Nachman. I never saw this till today. I happen to look at this. It is so bizarre. Okay. The remedy for the evil eye is to smoke the fin of a fish. Oh, gosh. (laughs) It's not the lead. We're out of the lead. I can't stand fish. But anyways, why? Why Why the fin of the fish? Well, we saw the fish has to do with Joseph. Okay, excellent. That's good. But here he brings down the word for a fin in Hebrew is sanapir. So sanapir, right? If you took the letters, the gematria is ra'ayin, 400, again. Okay? So the fin of a fish is sanapir, and that's the exact numerical value of 400. So, and he mentions if you can get this certain specific fish, fish called a shalin, which I've never heard of, okay? It's shalin actually sounds like also shell iron, okay? But in any case, so the fin of a fish should be worn by an adult or a child who may be affected by the evil eye and that will protect him. But just to skip, so, but the idea here really is the numerical value of 400, Okay, so if a person would to either smoke the fin of a fish or he wears the fin of a fish, some people wear kameas, you know, I happen to An see. amulet. Yeah, amulets, right? So, but here, you know, the same numerical value of sanapir, the fin of a fish, that opposes the 400 men of Esau and protects against the, the evil eye. Okay, that's one idea, one remedy. But very much like what you said, I found actually in uh, Rabbi Bard Sadok that he brings down, he actually brings the exact thing to do if a person thinks that they have evil eye, okay? And including all the prayers, the mumbling, okay, that prayers. you saw the grandmother do. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay? <laughs> right? Actually, it's quite long, uh, what you have to do, but he brings this down, you know? I don't know if you should try this at home. Okay, but just that your people should be exposed to it. Well, right? is this one of the things that will make people think this is just a heebie-jeebie kind of well, superstition kind of thing? But I'm just going to like listen until you've been exposed to it, and no, you know, it's not you know, it's not lead. Okay, basically, it's olive oil and water. Right. So he says you take a clean glass bowl, you wash it three times. Okay, here you go, heebie-jeebies. Right. <laughs> Right, and you should say uh, uh, a certain thing. I wash this bowl for the sake of the person who's sick, right? And then you have to cover the head. Did you do this? Your head was covered. They put I, a they sack. put us like a sack, yeah, like over a your head, thick blanket, yeah, very right. thick over sack over your head. So you have to cover the head of the one who's sick, and then you fill the bowl with clear water. You take a dish of pure virgin olive oil, and then you have to recite these verses three times, and it's a long, huge thing about. Uh, you know, coming out of Egypt, 
um, and different uh, blessings, uh, verses in the Torah that are brought. And then each time you recite the verses, you pour a small amount of olive oil in the water. And then you say these verses. Then, okay, after you recite a bunch of prayers, I'm, not, I'm looking at two pages. And after you say all of this, if the oil has fallen to the bottom of the dish, know that the person, the sick person is in danger. If it has ascended, so this is a good sign. In other words, if the oil sinks, which olive oil usually floats, right? So that's not good. So if it sinks, you have a problem. Right. If the oil looks like small coins, individual drops that are connected together but have not joined together as one, it's like somehow it's separate but, you know, joined. So this is a sign that the sick person, well, this is like, you know, will, will come close to death but will be healed. Thank God. Okay? So in other words, how do you read those drops? Okay? If the drops combine together as one and float on the top of the water, know that there is peace upon Israel and mercy but, has but been wait, requested. Wait. Is this a remedy or this is the diagnosis? This is the diagnosis. Well, how do you remedy it? Okay, they don't have, he doesn't, the remedy. So maybe we have to go with the with with the uh, lead. Uh, you got to go with the lead lady. You got to find the lead lady. There's one. That I, I don't think, think they the have street. them in America. <laughs> they do actually. They one do? in Dallas. Okay. I heard there was one in Dallas. Okay. Maybe it's worth the trip. But there's some sure there's definitely people all over that you can find. So okay? let me ask you a question, Robert. Cohen. Yes. Just in your assessment, should we be doing this every year or every month? Is this like the colonoscopy mammogram? Put it on your schedule. So listen, so listen to this. I looked in another book, in a, in a practical Kabbalah book on Zagulot and things like that, about Ayn Hara. And if you think you have the Ayn Hara on you, so he says, the remedy for the Ayn Hara is to do mitzvahs with joy. Mitzvahs with joy. Bing, boom. Simple. Just, just be joyous. And does he explain the rationale behind that? No. Okay. Uh, well, which book was this? Uh, I don't know. I have a bunch of books okay. on that. You know, sorry. You know, I don't. <laughs> but it said, I looked joy. it up and I'm like going, I'm looking for some like mystical thing like the olive oil that I just told you here. And he says, no, you just make sure you do mitzvahs with joy and that'll be your protection. Unbelievable, isn't it? Okay. I do have some other, some kind of rationale I could always say this is that it brings down from the verse in Deuteronomy that all these curses, and since you were mentioning all the curses and all yes. the sicknesses come upon you. So mentioning the 98 curses, the 98 curses, it says, why are these curses come upon you? It's because, you didn't do the mitzvahs with joy. And gladness of heart coming from abundance, right? So it's not that you didn't do the mitzvahs. It's that you did them is you didn't do them with joy. The idea really here is that the Shemi Shmuel brings down is that the universe, the spiritual realm, only knows one emotion, joy. In other words, the realm of the angels that carry up all of your mitzvahs in order to carry up to make the unbelievable connection they only can do things if it's done with joy. Otherwise, it just gets locked or goes to, I don't know where it goes. They can transport the energy with joy. If there's no joy, there's, it just it doesn't move. So in other words, the idea, the concept of joy, it makes this connection. I would say a connection to God, and therefore God is going to protect you. Well, or we could say in a much more technical way that the problem with the Ayn Hara is that it's, it's like the, it's downgrading from spiritual to physical. And making it subject to all the concomitant dangers of being in the physical world. If you bring the joy, it's kind of like once again restoring it back to its there you go yes Excellent. to its spiritual heights. And Very therefore. good. Very good. Uh, and I, I would definitely say that doing things in a private way or trying to be more modest, more unassuming, 
more or less public, uh, that too, I would say, definitely would qualify because that's going to, again, flying under the radar. Yeah. The question is here, I just, it just occurred to me was that maybe you have an answer for is why then when people say, oh, how many kids you have or this, and, you, and they, people go, Kenaina Hara or without the evil eye, Belinain Hara, why do they do that and what does that purport to do? I mean, what is really that statement when you think about it really doing in terms of offering protection? Is it removing jealousy? Is it reminding the person, I'm glad, thank you for your compliment. Please don't be jealous. Well, do do you see those words, Bli Einhara, like in the writings? Or that's just maybe, maybe that's one of the... This is the common, you know. It's the common, it's the common phrase. Everybody says it. Everybody, including me. Okay? We all say it. The question is, like, what is the rationale behind There's that be statement? So I'll use my, old, my, my original thing, my original idea. And I'm just saying this right now because I was hoping you'd have something, right? Sorry is to disappoint. Every thought, cre- every word, and every action creates a malach. So here's a malach that's not necessarily in the concept of the realm of thought. It's more expressed. So like what you said that your I think it was your grandfather's second or third opinion that you said by the judgment thing. So by the you making an expression with your mouth brings out a full expression that there'll be no judgment here. So it neutralizes the other force? Kind of. I'm just saying it's a more stronger neutralization of a force wow. because you're using your mouth, which is a more so you're saying a, powerful an, an expression. An angel produced v- via a verbal communication is stronger than what's mental. You know, it has yet to be determined because thoughts are very powerful. Well, but regardless, there's a, at least there's a counteracting angel. Yes. I love that. Possible. What a great way to end. Yes. Thank you so much, Robert Cohn, for Pleasure. joining us uh, on the inaugural Q&A. I decided to not make its own podcast, but to include it into one of my existing podcast uh, channels. Uh, but if you have any questions, please email me, rabbiwalby at gmail.com, with any questions to include in a future episode. And uh, my hope is to have a co-host. I don't know if I can have as good of a co-host in future episodes as Rabbi Cohn. And thank you, thank you so much Pleasure. for joining. Pleasure. Uh, but I'm sure, I'm sure we'll have you back. Uh, this was great. I enjoyed this. And uh, Bli Einhara, everything should flourish. Amen. <laughs> and uh, I guess that's that. I feel like we covered a lot of the basic outline. I'm sure there's been books written on it, and I'm sure. We could get into like what it actually says in those kameas and those amulets that people wear. I'm sure there's a lot there, but certainly it gives a very nice, well-rounded overview and introduction to this really enigmatic, perplexing idea, but not an idea that was invented yesterday. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Pleasure. I'm looking forward to next time.